The Advent season is the time of diving a little bit into um, the mud of regular life and looking out of that then to Jesus who is coming and moving from that place of some of the words used in this hymn of, of strife and of sorrow, and then moving into the place where we see and understand and realize again the coming of Christ. Fleming Rutledge is a favorite author and preacher of mine. She was, I believe, the first female Anglican priest ordained in the United States in the late 70s. And she wrote this about Advent. The Advent season, properly understood, is designed to strengthen us for life in the real world, where there are malignant forces actively working against human well-being and the divine purposes of God. And don't understand those forces as only them or out there. They are in us also as individuals and as communities. This is a world in which no one seems to know what to do about the catastrophic famine in Yemen or other places in the world. This is a world in which the promise of freedom and democracy in Poland and Hungary is shifting before the eyes of the world into oppression and autocracy, not to mention the invasion of Ukraine and its impact on the world. This is a world in which the promise of freedom and democracy, even in our own country, can seem fragile. This is a world in which we almost literally hear creation groaning under the burden of injustice and exploitation. This is a world in which our very best intentions turn against us. Against us. Fleming Rutledge is also active on Twitter, and recently I ran across this tweet from her. <clears throat> No other season of the church year is more closely connected to the difficulties, perplexities, setbacks, and seeming dead ends that the church faces on a daily basis. So we face that reality as we go into this Advent season. Generally speaking, everything in the Bible can be understood as pre-exile and post-exile. Before the Babylonians came and conquered the Hebrew nation, laid waste to the temple and carried the people far away into exile in a pagan land, the promises of God seemed secure. The land of milk and honey was in their possession. But God's people did not live according to the will of God. They became indifferent to the poor. They perverted the system of justice and they turned to foreign gods. God's judgment, long delayed by God's mercy, descended upon them in the form of the Babylonian hordes, and they were taken away to the land where those foreign gods reigned supreme, or so it seemed. The challenge to the supremacy, even to the very existence of the God of Israel, was overwhelming. The entire Hebrew project seemed to be at an end. And we begin our Advent uh, time, our Advent season this year, by reading through Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 was most likely written around the 6th century B.C. 
while Israel was in exile, in captivity in Babylon. So these words that we're reading today are written and spoken right in the middle of despair and hopelessness, of captivity. They're embedded in the destruction of all that had been valuable to Israel, all that Israel loved. The individuals being carried away into captivity, the families being broken up, the tribe being broken up, the nation being broken up, families, culture, values, and religious observances. And it's while they're in this darkness and in this hopelessness and in this wondering what's going to happen and wondering if anything could ever become of them again that these words were spoken. Before we read Isaiah 40, I do want to make one little comment starting off with a quote by Ellen Davis, whose name you will more frequently, you have frequently heard from here and probably will continue to hear from here. And she says this in her book, Getting Involved with God, we tend to hold the belief system that the universe operates according to a system of just desserts. If we do this, God will do that. Or God is doing that, Because we are doing this. And we tend to want to fit everything into a a kind of a balance, into kind of a system. If you do good things, good things will happen. And if you do bad things, bad things will happen. Diane Langberg, a well-known psychologist who specifically focuses on trauma, She speaks about suffering, and she says, Suffering rarely makes sense. Suffering is unreasonable. It is irrational. Still, we work very hard to make sense of it. I often think that the ability to explain suffering is the clearest indicator of never having suffered. Hear that again. I often think that the ability to explain suffering is the clearest indicator of never having really suffered. Because when you're deep in the suffering, there really can be no explanation for it. There's no logical way out. It just doesn't doesn't fit any paradigm that we might have. So as we read through Isaiah chapter 40 this morning, I don't want us to try to find answers Why are these people suffering? Why are we suffering? And what's going to happen if we do this or we do that? I don't think this chapter gives that to us. This chapter is leading us, I think, somewhere else. There's a comfort and a hope that's evident in this chapter that doesn't come, that's not rooted in explaining how it can happen or even how we can get out of it or even promising that we will get out of it. It's a comfort in the suffering. So what I'd like to do this morning is basically read through Isaiah 40 with you in little chunks. I'm just going to read them. Uh, If you have a Bible, feel free to open it. Otherwise, it'll appear on the wall. 
And I'm just going to read each section and then just make a couple comments, and we'll go, we'll go through it in that way. So let's start Isaiah chapter 40, the verses 1 and 2, pretty familiar uh, to all of us, and we've actually already read them uh, this morning. And again, this is this new section of Isaiah, this, this new author. The, 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 the destruction of Jerusalem has happened. The captives have been taken into Jerusalem. There they are, not knowing what's going to happen to them. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The first words spoken in the suffering are comfort. Comfort. The God speaking tenderly to Jerusalem. There is a little bit of a theological problem here, which I'm not going to spend any time on because I haven't come up with an answer. <laughs> uh, it's this thing that says her iniquity is pardoned, but she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I don't know how those two things match. I'm just laying that out there. And I haven't found any commentators that are able to help me. Not that I've looked at everyone in the world, but all those that I've looked at don't satisfy me on this at all. There's something jarring in here. You either pardon my sins or you pay me for them. One, one or the other, not both. I don't know how this works. But it's one of the reasons why I think this is not designed to give us a system or an answer. God is pardoned. God is speaking comfort. God is speaking tenderly, speaking comfort. But the people feel somehow like they've received double. I don't know how that works, but that's what's here. Then the verses 3 to 5. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And this is an image that we've talked about here a number of times over the years of the new king, who is the conquering king. His armies have conquered this piece of land. And the new king is now riding into town, riding into the city. And as he's getting ready to ride into the city, the ways, the road is being made suitable for him to ride on. You can think of our own president whenever he goes somewhere. They send this probably a couple of big transport planes filled with all the stuff that he needs to make his visit. Uh, uh, safe and, and well while he's there. This is the idea. That this way is being prepared for this king who's going to come. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. And again, for those of you who are counting the alls in the Bible, here's another one. So God says to Israel, comfort, comfort. I'm speaking tenderly to you. The way is being prepared. 
This king is going to come. And then we go on. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All of us will fade. Our life is but a moment. The glory of the Lord, the word of our God will stand forever. And whenever in the Bible you see that word, word, don't think primarily about the Bible. That's also the word of God. But you think about Jesus. The word of our God, this, this looking ahead, the word of our God will stand forever. So comfort ye comfortly. I'm speaking tenderly to you. The way is being prepared. The word of our God will stand forever. And then we go on, starting in verse 9. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. And that good news is that the king is coming. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God, the King is coming. The Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. There's not a hint of a solution here. There's not a hint of things being made right. What's happening in this, this God is coming, this king is coming. And what's he going to do? He's going to tend his flock. He's going to tend, attend, tend you and you in the plural. He's going to tend us like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom. And he'll gently lead those that are with young. Feel something of the comfort in these words? In the darkness, in the exile, in the suffering, in the middle of the night, there's the shepherd tending his flock, gathering the lambs, caring for them, and leading them. And then we go on to verse 12, 12 through 26. It's a bit of a long passage, but I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of the book of Job, but Job was this, it's, it's in the book of the Bible before Psalms, Job was this righteous man who, and I won't go into the whole story, who suffered deeply in almost every kind of imaginable way, and struggled together with his friends to find out why. Why did this happen to me? I don't deserve it. I'm a just person. I don't deserve this suffering. And you remember, you may remember that God's answer to him was not why this is happening. God's answer to him was, 
I am God. Remember those chapter after chapter after chapter where God says, I'm not telling you why this is happening. I'm just telling you who I am. And I hear echoes of Job here in Isaiah. So listen, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor as nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? And here's a little bit of sarcasm. An idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver change, chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. And you can hear the, the ridicule in his voice. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. It's a great picture of the greatness of God. And do you remember the answer of Job after gone, God had gone chapter after chapter with this kind of language? Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I had heard of you, but now I've seen you, and I am silent. So Job looks up, the prophet Isaiah, the, the, the person who wrote this, looks up and sees God.
this God who is great above the heavens, the God, the king, the God in charge of everything. There's no answer yet to why all this can happen. How can it be that a good God allows? And all those questions, there are no answers here. There's just seeing the reality of this God who has at the same time the, the, the great king, creator, maker, ruler of heaven and earth, and at the same time, this shepherd, gently leading his flock and carrying the lambs in his bosom. And then the conclusion of the chapter. God speaking. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And here you hear just the hint of what he's just been saying. Kind of a, kind of a summary. Don't you remember how great I am? 29. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait, and the word here is actually hope. They who wait for the Lord, they who hope in the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. In these words, you hear a summary of the words with which the chapter started. Comfort, comfort, speak tenderly. And then the words of the shepherd who comes and tends and guides and cares for his flock. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait, who hope for the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And there's no answer here. There's no explanation for why. In the middle of the darkness, at the beginning of Advent, this prophet says to the people in exile in the 6th century B.C., or in the 21st century A.D., God is in the heavens above. And at the same time, he is tenderly and gently caring for and leading and guiding. And those are the two truths that we focus our eyes on when things are the most dark. Or to put it in another way, the Apostle Paul, who was uh, in the first, just after, just after, uh, in the early church, in prison, in the worst possible of circumstances, in the grasp of the Roman Empire, 
not knowing what was going to happen to him, not knowing what was going to happen to all the churches that he loved, all the Christians that he had been serving, not knowing what was going to happen, and probably expecting that things weren't going to turn out that great because there was a ton of hostility and darkness and cruelty and war and death. And he writes to the Ephesians, and he says, I pray that God will grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, not seeing a solution, but believing in this God who came to earth in Jesus Christ. And he goes on, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The hope of Advent is not in the first place that everything's going to be fixed. The hope of Advent is that we will know, maybe for the first time, or perhaps again in a new way, the love of Christ for us, who emptied himself, who came to walk with us in our darkness and to light the way through whatever we may be facing on a personal level, on a community level, on a society level, on a worldwide level. I am not a person who's known a lot of suffering in my life. There are people listening to me right now who've known way more suffering than I have. I'm just a baby when it comes to suffering. There's a lot about this that I don't understand. But I have known some suffering. I have known some pain. And I have known and do know brokenness in myself and some of the people that I love the most and the people I run across and work with every day. And over the last while, what keeps me going is not so much the hope that things at some time are going to get fixed. The love of Christ, its depth, its breadth, its length, and its height. To know the love of Christ, to know this shepherd, to know this king, that together, this gentle Aslan, as C.S. Lewis described it, and that brings you out of the mud and muck of today and lets you know that you are not alone, that I am not alone, that we are not alone, and that there is nothing in this whole world that can separate us from the love of Christ. In a sermon that was preached on December 3, 1933 in London, for the first Sunday of Advent, 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German theologian, who about 12 years later was executed by the Nazis, preached this. It is not for the well-satisfied with their full stomachs, this word of Advent, but rather for the hungry and the thirsty. It knocks at their door powerfully and insistently. But he is coming. Christ is clearing his way towards you, toward your heart. He wants to take our hearts, which have become so hard, and soften them in obedience to him. He keeps calling to us during these very weeks of waiting, waiting for Christmas, to tell us that he is coming, that he alone will rescue us from the prison of our existence, out of our fear, out of our guilt, and out of our loneliness. Give you a few minutes to meditate on this. Handel's Messiah, comfort ye, well known, I'm sure, to all of you.
Uh-huh. <laughs> 